All right, everyone, welcome. X Ambers Podcast. Uh, Scott McLaren here and uh, Schoolman Fawcett. We are talking today about monarchy. Is that, that, that a I title? suppose so. Well, I suppose. we. So we are, of course, uh, you know, coming to you from Chesterton Academy of St. Isidore, the world's first and to date only online Chesterton Academy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that intersect when you talk about a topic like the British monarchy. Now, of course, it's been on my mind for obvious reasons, because a couple of weekends ago was the coronation. Mm -hmm. uh, when were you expecting to see the coronation in your lifetime? Did you ever expect I, I, to see I, it? In I, your can I be fully honest? I never even thought about it. I uh... you thought so you, you just took for granted that Queen Elizabeth would be there as long as you were alive. Uh, well, you never stopped to reflect on whether. I don't know how many of my Republican tendencies are going to come out in this podcast. I'll try and keep them. Uh... No, no, that's what this is for. This is for flushing it out. We have had requests for a proper yeah. debate, and this is probably as close as we're going to get because we don't disagree on enough things to argue about. But right, right. it's okay. Okay, so you as a, as a okay, so let's full disclosure. Let's cards on the table here, Doctor yeah. McClarney. Uh, the name like McClarney. Yes. You're obviously French. We uh, <laughs> just So yeah, that's true. So Dr. McClarney is Irish and French, um, which is why his name is Gerard with two yeah. R's, but he's well, pronounced well, Jared. Well, yeah, actually, no. It's it's um. I don't have actually any uh, French heritage. You're kidding. Uh, no, don't. Yeah, yeah. So how did you come to teach at a French immersion school? You just oh, had more initiative. Oh, than I, your I, my 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 um, parents are immigrants, and they sent me to a French school. Uh, I, well, there's different reasons, perhaps why, but it was a trend. Uh, so you still imbibed the francophile mind. That's or right, the francophone mind. Well, guess, for, so. for, yeah, our francophile in, in the sense, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and, but my teachers, so both my parents and my teachers who are mostly Quebecois, um, did not infuse within me any necessarily deep love for the monarch. Um, they had a maybe subtle Republican streak. Uh, we didn't, it was never really an issue uh, that was explicitly addressed. It, it was more perhaps implied or implicit. Would you just ask me, like, what were you expecting the coronation? Well, I didn't really have an answer because I wasn't really expecting anything. Right, so it's like God in a secular school. They're not anti, they're not atheistic, but God is just a non-presence that you just don't think about. Something like that, yes. And I, that might be a good, an apt analogy where they're uh, or deistic, uh, like, mm. like most Canadians where we have this... Well, the analogy holds uh, this this monarch in some other distant land who's just not involved in current affairs mm -hmm. or if we want to take a more hardened atheistic view saying there should be no monarch whatsoever right, right. across our right. land um, mm -hmm. or we could be uh, perhaps and I think this is I'm just anticipating here a little bit uh, more theistic and saying um, no we need to insist on the importance and role and uh, dare I say primacy of of the monarch in our society, whether it's a Canadian or or otherwise. So uh, I, anyhow, that's um, oh. Oh. or I'm assuming you're going to take this. Well, I'm not. I'm not necessarily here to convince you of royalism. I I, I more want to oh, analyze okay. it. Now, right. I will, okay, and full disclosure from me. Yes. Um, so there are not a lot of postnomials in Canadian history, you know, like, like things you can put at the end of your name. There's not a lot of aristocratic titles, you know, like Esquire or something like that. Uh, yes. But there is one. It's UE, letters U and E. UE, oh, really? Short for United Empire Loyalist. And if you oh. had an ancestor who fought against the Americans in the Revolutionary War, yes. apparently yeah. you are allowed to uh, address yourself, or uh, I guess sign yourself as your name, comma, UE. No way. I am among the privileged uh, group of people. It ain't, I have no proprietary rights as far as I know. Oh, it doesn't okay. make me a lord or anything. But I am allowed to call myself Brett Fawcett UE because I have 
two ancestors to my knowledge who fought in the American Revolutionary War on the Loyalist side uh, in the New Brunswick area. Uh, Isaac Bennell was one of them, and uh, another one's name slips my mind. But I've got a friend who's really into genealogy. Okay. They tracked this down for me once and let me know that if I, that if I wanted to, I could, I could apply for formal recognition of this. I haven't bothered to do that yet. Okay. Because you, uh, putting an empire loyalist in your name, I think these days, would be contentious. Uh, empires don't have the best reputation. Maybe we can talk about that someday. Sure. But imperialism. But yeah. but I did have ancestors who fought for the monarchy. So it is something that's of interest to me. Is right. Why would somebody okay. feel so strongly yeah. about this uh, institution yeah. that's overseas, right? That they right. Would potentially laid on their life for it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, okay. That's interesting. So Brett Fawcett. U.E. Oh. Um, and I, I thought maybe this would be an, you know just another degree that you 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 you've earned, but no, this is this no, is, this is completely yeah, unearned. Okay. This and, is an unearned increment uh, of association. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Now I will also disclose that I'm fascinated by the idea of monarchy for mostly Neoplatonic reasons, but in in, in terms of looking at uh, well the scala natura or the scale of being, and uh, you know how humanity relates to creation and God and so forth. So I think there's some fascinating things uh, that, that can go on there with, with, with monarchy, although I do have some, even there, I do have some reservations too. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, do you want to take Let me just lay out what I think is okay. the case for it in a general sense. Okay. Um, or, or at least like what the, what the idea behind monarchy is. I mean, yes. why, why, what's the rationale behind putting all this power into this hereditary uh, institution Right. Why, why this Charles just had the you know privilege of happening to be the firstborn of Queen Elizabeth, who happened to be the firstborn of George the Sixth. You know, it's all coincidental. Why, why give them all this power, this vast amount of power they supposedly have? Right. Um, and the coronation was an interesting demonstration of this. Uh, and also, we do have a coworker who happened to be in London at the time and right. graciously took some photographs, yes. which I imagine Mrs. Wright is going to put on the screen right now. Uh, I don't know. Did you have a chance to review all of them and see? The... I did look through uh, through them, and uh, yeah, there's 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 quite um, well, they're quite arresting some of them, and, and just to see the, the the crowds who are there uh, uh, to to see this momentous event. I, I mean, it's a historical event. It's it is historic for sure, but it's also interesting that people really do care so deeply about it. Yeah. And for a variety of reasons, right? So some purely because oh, this is the first time in seventy years that that this has occurred, or uh, so, some are pointing out, well, this is an ancient ritual um, that that has been untouched or undeveloped in the last millennia. And thinking, you know, when I read that, I'm like, well, it's not that old if it's only a thousand years. But in any case, any case, for Catholics, we have a longer pedigree than that. So right. We, yeah. we, we, we can do you one better. We can do it twice as long. But yes, it is. It's not not. Although it's not sure that it's under undeveloped because it has changed. Okay. Uh, the coronation of this change, which we can talk a little bit about. Oh but. sure, sure. And then uh, particularly in a fast-paced society where we see unprecedented change and change and change and change uh, from you know. In, year to year almost, right? Uh, so, yeah, these seismic shifts, this ground which moves beneath us, oh, maybe this could be something enduring which we can look to, some sort of appeal there as well, right? Uh, then perhaps uh, fascination with, with the uh, the unknown or at least the, you know, the, what's mysterious uh, about these 
sacred rituals and all the rest. That, that, that also, I think, has a certain allure. And then I think as well, when it comes to, dare I say, celebrity uh, culture, where mm. there, there's a certain attraction, is there not, for, for us to look towards those who are wealthy and famous and in some cases powerful, right? So, so we kind of have a fascination, do we not? Uh, that, that, that allures our eye to, to extravagance. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? So as, as we discussed before uh, with uh, Persia and, <laughs> and the Hunger Games, yeah. uh, there's, yes, there's a, there's a natural kind of appeal or allure to extravagance, yes. sure. Yes. Well, okay, yeah, so that's it. I think there's absolutely a lot to what you're saying. Uh, people are attracted to uh, the the fact that there's something ancient about it, uh, and there's yeah. a natural a natural draw towards celebrity, which, uh, as we were discussing off camera, uh, C.S. Lewis, that was one of his points in favor of monarchy, was, sure, it's easy to debunk a monarchy. It's easy to show that it's absurd. But watch what happens when you get rid of it. Uh, yeah. People just end up transferring that allegiance to celebrities. Right. In some cases, it's gangsters, he even says. Sure. Or actors or singers, right? They yeah. become the new monarchy. Yeah, or sports right? figures. Sports figures as well. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the ways... I mean, Elvis Presley was the king. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. So maybe there is something natural and spontaneous about our celebrity, and let's call it worship, that monarchy, in some sense, uh, redirects towards uh, civil good, right? Towards okay. public spiritedness. Yes. I mean, this would be one of my arguments for it. Okay. Sure, it seems silly, but it's almost inevitable. So it, we may as well find some way of. Uh, of leveraging it for a political sentiment. Okay. Political well, you, you've half you've half convinced me. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Get it. okay. Well, that's not bad for this yeah. early on. Okay. Well. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me talk about let me let me try to lay this out as best sure. I can. Sure. Well, I guess just to jump in, one other thing oh, that sure, got okay. me interested was uh, Father Raymond D'Souza, who oh. who's been tracking this as well in in uh, Canadian media, uh, and he likes to write about the monarchy as well. And so he he pointed out how Pope Francis had donated, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, relics of the True Cross to uh, King Charles. Yes, yes. And so that, that also got me thinking more about this uh, and, and the religious con uh, history and, and symbolism and, and what's going on mm, in, yeah. in the ritual of um, uh, uh, coronation. coronation. Yeah, yeah. The, the anointing of the king. Yes. Yeah, that's, well, so and, uh, and, you know, there's one could say, I've heard it said, that chivalry is created on Good Friday. The idea of laying down one's life for a friend, right. uh, and Christian monarchy is founded on Holy Thursday, right? When uh, the king oh. washes the feet of his servants, okay. uh, which is a tradition of uh, yes. monarchs, actually, a Primandi Thursday. Uh, yeah, there's something. Um, well, and it's not just the, the Pope, actually. Uh, I have I have the details here, but um, okay. oh, the the oil, the oil to anoint him for his coronation yes. uh, is from the Holy Sepulchre Church right. in Jerusalem. Right, yeah. uh, the, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem, right, and the Anglican Archbishop, uh, they, they consecrated it. Yeah, ceremony, right, yeah. which is very interesting. Of course, Charles himself has uh, Greek Orthodox roots. Okay, um, his father was from the Greek right Greek family, yeah. and his and his gra um, his grandmother actually, of course, was uh, sort of a, a Greek Orthodox nun. Uh, who may have had schizophrenia. Okay. Uh, I think Sigmund Freud actually looked at her. Her life was like nuts. But who yeah. also uh, concealed Jewish people during uh, from the Nazis. Okay. So she's one of the righteous among the Gentiles. So there's a very yeah. interesting um, Greek Orthodox uh, lineage, actually, or like in the background. Okay. I know he's been to Mount Athos as well, actually, okay. Charles. Uh, there's a lot we can say about Charles. I hope we do talk a bit about him. But yeah. that's true. Yeah, that, that the, the fact that the true cross was represented there. Yes. Uh, hopefully we'll talk about this. That... that conjunction between Christ's rule and human rule. 
mm-hmm. sort of on display there. But yeah. but let me talk about okay, so let's the, hear. The, the, the premise behind the British monarchy because you can't okay. what it really is is it's the idea of the British Constitution, right? You okay. can't you're not you're not just talking about the monarchy as this separate thing. It's it's part of a whole system, and to understand it, I think you actually need to start with Aquinas. Ah. Uh, in the first part of the second part of the Summa, question one hundred five. Uh, he says, well, he argues, okay, so he does a couple of things. He's talking, first of all, about uh, this book, The Politics of Aristotle, which he also wrote a commentary on. I don't know that he finished it. He also wrote a book on kingship as well. But he argues that ancient Israel had the best political system. Okay. Uh, he quotes uh, Numbers 24, how beautiful are your tabernacles and your tents, O Jacob. And, of course, politics, you know, means like city, like houses, <laughs> households right. in a city, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and he says... Um, that there are two things you need and for right ordering of a state or nation. One is that all should take some share in the government. And he quotes Aristotle's politics for this. Okay. Uh, the other point uh, is that there's different kinds of constitutions. And, of course, this is from Aristotle, too. Right? You, know, you have monarchy and tyranny. Right? You have uh, aristocracy and oligarchy. And then you have the uh, polity and the democracy. And each of those, there's a good, it's the good version of the bad version, or vice versa, right? Um, Monarchy is the best of all, and by monarchy, he just means essentially like an absolute dictatorship, right? Right. Something like Plato's philosopher king. That would be the best system. Unfortunately, if it goes wrong, you have tyranny, which is the very worst system. Right, (laughs) Right? yes. Uh, Aristocracy would be pretty good too, but unfortunately, that too easily devolves into oligarchy. A polity is, is sort of a constitutional democracy is not capable of the same greatness as a absolute great philosopher king or of an idealized aristocracy. But on the other hand, a democracy is also not capable of as much evil as an oligarchy or a tyranny, right? right? So you kind of, in a very Aristotelian way, you kind of have to go for the middle, right? Right, You meet in the middle, you go for the golden mean, right? So what Aquinas says is that the best form of government in a state or kingdom uh, is in one where the power is given to preside over all, while under him are others having governing powers. And yet a government of this kind is shared by all because all are eligible to govern and because the rulers are chosen by all. And this is the best form of polity. It's partly kingdom, partly aristocracy, and partly democracy, i.e. government by the people. Uh, so it's kingdom because there's one at the head of all. It's aristocracy insofar as a number of persons are set in authority. There's partly democracy because the rulers can be chosen from the people and the people have the right to choose their rulers. Okay. He argues this is actually the mosaic system. Okay. He quotes okay. Deuteronomy, right? Moses is the king, and there's 72 men who were chosen. Uh, because yeah. there's a democratical government, as far as the rulers were chosen from among all the people. And he sort of seems to suggest that, well, these were like kind of provided by the people. They were picked. So yeah. he says okay, that so is the best can, can I borrow your pen there? Yes, please. Okay. And I write on this? Okay, keep going. Keep going. Okay, sure. Of course. See, this is why I brought it. Is yeah. um, now, so that's what, there's, there's more Aquinas says. But so this mixed constitution, he thinks, is the very best model, right? Now, there's a theorist named uh, Sir John Fortescue. You're uh, writing right now on an article about him. That I read before. <laughs> okay. And Fortescue argued that he, he was writing about the British Constitution shortly after the Magna Carta. Right? And he says that the British Constitution captures this the best. And he contrasts this with actually the French monarchy at the time. And you remember the French monarchy, right? Like there's conflict between the king and the French. The I, French king and the pope. Je right? suis l'état. It's never, right? yeah. I, but, I am the state. Yeah, there's, there's, well, yeah, this is even way, this is like in the 14th century. This oh, okay. is the fair, even. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. even, oh, even before you got like all the other Louis going nuts uh, yeah. or Napoleon, right? It's already Philip the Fair wants to, like, he's the one who um, uh, burns the Knights Templar. 
Right? Okay. He's like centralizing right all his power. And then yeah. the Pope the Pope actually issues his encyclical Unum Sanctum against Philip, saying okay, yeah. know, the, the Pope right has two swords, the spiritual and temporal. And in response to that, Philip just takes over the bishopric basically and and, and it even like kind of imprisons the Pope at one point. Like it leads to a whole bunch of, so the, the, there's already right. he suggests I mean Fortescue's already talking about this, yeah. right after the Magna Carta, that the French tendency is towards a central absolutist monarchy. Which is yeah. which we'll see is exactly what develops, right? right. Uh, whereas the British system, he thinks, and he's explicit about this, is Thomistic, right? It has the mm. king, and he reigns, and yeah. um, in a sense can do no wrong, but he can't reign without Parliament, which represents the people, is chosen from among the people. Yeah. They pass the laws that constrain the king, but they also uh, the power ends up kind of flowing from the king, which. Is also important because this is interesting too because there's sort of a sense that the monarchy is the most ultimately democratic thing because uh, Aquinas says this too in the first part of the second part, question 97. The sovereign has no power to frame laws except as representing the people because each individual cannot make laws, but the whole people can. So in some sense, the laws do emerge from the people, but you can't just have a whole bunch of people getting together and making laws, like according to Aquinas. Somehow the whole people has to do this and make do this through their representative, who is the king. Okay. And then Fortescue develops this, right? That the king okay. is in some sense the embodiment or representative of the people, which leads into what we've talked about, which is the king's two bodies. The sense that in some yeah. sense the, there's the king, and I, I will get into this, I'm sure you have something to say, but we'll get into yeah. examples of how this played out in history in a yeah. minute. But that there's the king's natural body. Yeah, so, is, so this is the this is the king's two bodies. Uh, so Mr. Fossey here is going to explain what this is with this theology, which mostly develops. I, I'm going to say in France. Uh, I mean, you, they're not exclusively French thinkers, but uh, most of these references I think do come from French uh, theologians in, in the Middle Ages. Yeah, well, Kantorkiewicz, uh, Kantorkiewicz, I think that's how you say it. Uh, he writes this book in the 50s on the king's two bodies, a study in medieval political theology. I think is what it's called, uh, and. He gives examples, I mean, well, Fortescue has this too, but yeah, there's French theorists. Uh, I mean, you can sort of see it even in Aquinas and what we saw, but that there's, the king has two bodies. He's both his physical, natural body, yep. the body that we all have, but he also has the whole body politic. Right. And in some sense, he is okay. carrying around with him, right? And the coronation is, is where that's really put on display, that he's donning the whole body that's why he's holding the globe with the cross over it right yes. that's why he's wearing these symbolic robes that he's in some sense become invested with the whole people which is why there's actually um part of the coronation oath or part of the ritual is uh the, the part where the choir all chants god save the king that's actually the archbishop asking like essentially will you have this man as your king and symbolically on behalf of the people they're saying yes god save the king right Viva okay Ex, right right, right. Uh, okay and in turn, the king is making certain promises. Like, as your representative, I will enact all the laws that are made by you in parliament, basically. I mean, that's me making those laws in parliament. But, so that there are, in a sense, two kings, which is how, in one sense, the monarchy is eternal and represents everybody, but it's also a guy. And, and, and yeah. at times you can even separate those two. But there's, that's where there's the representational aspect, which I think you can see even today, like in these crowds you were talking about. There's, yeah. In spite of its seeming anti-democratic character, uh, there's still, like Hilaire Bella called it the popular monarchy, right? People still seem invested in the king yes. in some sense. In literal, yeah. I mean invested, right? Like yes. he's wearing them somehow. 
And, right. that, and that's the uh, ideal of what the monarchy is. Now, there's more I could say about this, but I can yeah. tell you want to interject. So, Well, I mean, some other interesting things, well, some reservations, I might say, about the two-body theories. When I'm reading these theologians, and it, it was flooring to read it at first because um, these were compiled by a Princeton professor in the yeah, 1950s. Yeah. And when I first read it, I, I didn't read the first few paragraphs closely <laughs> enough. And I thought it was him who was right, writing this about the monarch. Yes. And it, I just, my jaw dropped, hit the floor. I was uh, reading what he was trying to say. But basically, in the, in the different theologians differ. But part of my reservation is seems, well, one is the body uh, natural is elevated by the body politic. So it almost as if the king has two natures. Uh, and it's very like much Christ. like Christ. Yes, it's very much like a hypostatic union. So uh, you, perhaps um, you know, St. Athanasius fans out there will know this quote, uh, God became man so that man could become God. Uh, and mm. so it's very much that nature that his infirmity even are, are elevated. Uh, and the body politic, when it joins to the body natural, elevates um, the, the status of the king. Mm. And it's something that in itself, a very Neoplatonic idea, is almost this, this true form, this eternal form that cannot uh, be diseased, it cannot diminish, uh, and, 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 and so on. So it's a fascinating concept. But when I read it, I almost, it seems like these are bureaucrats, mm -hmm. theologians who are giving a rationale for, for why we have this king. That's one, that's perhaps mm -hmm. maybe a more cynical way of reading it. A more generous way of reading it, I think, would be to say these are thorough Christians who are reflect, so infused with the Paschal mystery uh, that they're, they, they want to see Christ in everything. And think, okay, well, how can we make this work in our political system? Mm -hmm. oh, oh, I know, this is how we can do it when it comes mm -hmm. to the king. So uh, kind of two different reactions when, when we're looking at it. It's one of admiration to yeah. say, wow, what ingenuity that yeah, yeah, these, right, right. these mm -hmm. thinkers had uh, in terms of um, propping up this theology of the king, which mirrors so closely the theology of the hypostatic union, mm -hmm. uh, right? So human, humanity joined uh, to divinity. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the earthly king or the body of the king joined to the... Uh, uh, well, the, the, the natural body, body, politics, yeah, yeah, body yeah, politic, yeah. yeah. So, so these join together. Um, so, so the, the, I mean, mm -hmm. those are some uh, ways of reading it. But sure, sure. Uh, Can I point out though? Sure. Like, I, I, I grab what you're saying, but it's worth remembering that it's not as though they are inventing monarchy in this way or Christian monarchy, right? right. This is something that's developed, and they're, as kind of said, they're reflecting on it. Yes. And that, that's also a point in its favor, from like a Burkean perspective, from a Chestertonian perspective, even, right? It. it the, one of the advantages of this weird system is that it evolved. Right? Okay, it yeah. developed out of the kind of uh, accumulated stock of wisdom. Again, yes. you know, to use the sort of Berkey and Chestertonian language. Yeah. And then, okay, well now this thing's developed, and it's going to keep developing. So let's reflect on what it actually is. And in some sense, even saying that since God is in charge of history, God has kind of produced this force. I mean, like because they trace it back to. I mean, a lot of this is happening after the Norman Conquest, right? After after William the Conqueror, right? After yeah. Hastings, right? Yeah. Um, the institution, in some sense, dates back to Edward the Confessor, right? Who pre, and it's interesting that they don't try to erase him, right? After the okay. Norman kings come in, they yeah. they want this continuity with him. In fact, that's actually, if I remember right, that's why they get, um, why why the coronation happens at Westminster Abbey is because it, it was built by Edward, I want to say. Okay. So they really want to have this connection to this saintly king, like this this 
strange holy fool of a king who could apparently heal people and and may have been celibate in his marriage right yeah. they, they they want this um they still want to maintain a connection to him but these theologians and these political theorists and these bureaucrats are reflecting on this thing that's developed um for example the magna carta right we have yeah. king john who's the villain of the robin hood stories right yeah. awful prince john right yeah. he's ruling while his brother is off fighting crusades right yeah um Magna Carta, which is written by Archbishop Stephen Langton, okay. um, who, uh, if you don't recognize that name, does uh, he give us the uh, divisions in the Bible? That's exactly yeah. it. Okay. Those, the two things he did yeah. okay. was he divided the Bible into chapters, yeah. and he wrote the Magna Carta in twelve fifteen, same year as the Fourth Lateran Council. Okay, right. And so this is developed, but but again, the Magna Carta claims to be part of the ancient British Constitution. Right. So the idea is that we've inherited this thing and need to make sense of it. And okay, well, what, like you said, they're so imbued with this, with this analogical uh, theology, right? Yeah. Seeing everything through the lens of Christ, and understanding that the church has an active role in the world, right? Yep. So it's not as though like the uh, hypostatic union of Christ just exists in theology; it has some kind of implication right. for the world. In, in fact, you could think about uh, even the understanding of priesthood, right? Because yep. in some sense, there's a, there's a dual body thing going on there. Right? There's the priest. The sinner, but there's also the priest in persona Christi. Right. right? Yes. Uh, and in fact, and I, and I haven't found anyone who refers to this, but at least in the, at least in those medieval theologians, if anyone knows anyone, let us know. But I was even thinking about Romans 13. Okay. Right. That the state is the minister of God. Mm -hmm. And the Greek there is is what, Doctor McClarney? Oh, minister. Uh, it's a uh, diaconos. Oh, oh, the it, servant. It's okay. Actually, it's that's, okay. I guess it depends on your translation. Yeah. But the, I'm familiar with the old King James, sure. which calls it minister, which sounds very explicitly ecclesiastical okay but but deacon i mean it is it's the same word that's used it's not necessarily technically deacon but it's, it's used that yeah, way a yeah, lot well, in scripture. yeah yeah oh yeah yeah so the idea that there's something diaconal let's say or yes. ministerial right yes. the government i mean this takes that and and really institutionalizes that right by saying it is almost clerical right? maybe okay okay <laughs> well i mean i mean the fact that it's an order that's an anointing Right. Uh, well, I'm not sure Romans 13 is is, is going to use the word anointing. Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, right, but but, but it, I mean, we'll say it's it's not for. But a couple but, chapters later, at First Phoebe, same word, right? As a servant of the church. Uh, like, like, okay. Like, obviously, like Nero is not a yeah. is not a minister in the same way. But like, government in general is is ordained by God to execute this apocalyptic wrath. That's what well, Romans 13 is saying. Yeah, it, well, not even to say apocalyptic. It can be um, realized in the sense that um, it's not for no reason that uh, mm -hmm. the sword has been given to the emperor, right? So so Paul is saying there that within God's purview or, or the plan of creation, yeah, there there is authority on earth. Uh, and so this happens to be the sword, right? Mm -hmm. happens, and there there's the perhaps generous view that this is going to be used for meeting out punishment where needed right mm. uh so so that's there um i don't know if you can based on that mm. make make all necessarily the same connections that you'll have with the two uh, bodies um mm. I, I mean i'm not you could deduce it i don't think you'd read yeah. romans 13 and get like a coronation yeah out of that necessarily yeah, yeah right but what this thing that's developed is okay well we have we understand christ to be the king of the world and Ultimately, the government derives its authority from God. I mean, that's Romans 13 for sure. Yes. Right. Yep. Um, given our understanding of that, what should it look like? And organically, this thing seems to have developed of 
of, of having it be a quasi-clerical ceremony and, and an analogy to Christ having two natures is how we're going to understand uh, the kingship. And, and, and here, right. uh, here's another thing on this point, though, because this is something a student asked me about in class, actually. Okay. And so yep. it prompted a reflection that I appreciated. Yeah. So obviously there's this great danger with kings of tyranny, yep. right? as Aristotle talks about, and it's in First Samuel as well. The people yes. for a king, and there's that famous passage that Thomas Paine quotes in his book *Common Sense*, calling for the American Revolution. Right? About yeah. If you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to yeah. take your best kids and send yeah. them to war, and he's going to make your life terrible. Right? Yeah. Which is, of course, what happens under Rehoboam, and, yeah. and that all goes pretty poorly. Right? So, how do you limit that? Well, and this goes back to Aquinas, right? Well, you need laws, right? Okay. You need laws which are participations in God's law. That's, of course, Aquinas' definition of law is a ordinance by the legitimate government of reason uh, promulgated for the common good. Right? You need laws to confine right. to confine uh, dictatorship, basically. Yeah. Well, again, the monarch and the fact that he's in he or she only has their authority by virtue of the fact that they were born, yeah. that automatically makes people suspicious of them. Oh, yes. Right? That, like, that puts a cap on their power, as opposed yeah. to the American presidency, whose power just keeps, seem to, keeps expanding. <laughs> right. Oh, you think about how, how many more executive orders have been issued, right, by the last right. few presidencies. Like, their yeah. federal government's power just seems to keep expanding because there's yeah. this faux democratic legitimacy to them, right? As right. opposed to the, the monarch, which there's an immediate suspicion of because, they, because they're just yes. inherited, right? Yeah. But yeah. The, the monarch can act, but he can't really legislate, not on his own, right? He can only legislate, and this is, you know, the Magna Carta, this is Fortescue, uh, this is Bracton who's writing right after Magna Carta. He can only pass laws with all these representatives of the people, with what, you know, becomes the parliament, essentially. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful line from Bracton that I want to make sure I quote accurately, where he says... Okay. Um, it reminds again what, what year about is This uh, is Bracton. the 14th century, I want to okay. say, 13th or 14th century. But he says, uh, so the king has a superior, namely God. And the law by which he was made king is also his superior, and also his curia, the earls and barons, because if he is without a bridle, that is to say, without law, they ought to put the bridle on him. So if the king acts, so the king is made king by the laws, and if the king acts lawlessly, people can actually use the laws to bridle him, right? Uh, another line, he says, the king has no equal within his realm, because subjects can't be equals of the ruler, because he would thereby lose his rule, because equal can have no authority over equal, etc. So he says the king can't have any equals. He has to be the superior. The king cannot be under man, but under God and under the law, because the law makes the king. And he has this kind of pun, I guess you could say in Latin. There is no rex where there is no lex. Okay. So there, there has to be law in place to actually make the king. And yes. if the king starts to violate that, you can actually um, use the law to curb him. Yeah. Now, this thing kind of develops, which is the, the doctrine that um, the king can do no wrong. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that whatever the king does is okay. What it means is that, and this goes back to the two bodies thing. Yeah. The king can't be found liable of uh, breaking the law. That would lead to all sorts of chaos. Yeah. So what happens instead is he can only act through his cabinet. He acts right. through his, his ministers, right? His sure. prime minister, the cabinet. Yeah. They act on the king's behalf. And they can be found guilty. Right. They, okay. they can be thought, oh, you yeah. violated the law. The king is sort of left untouched by that. <laughs> yes. but, but his ministers can be found guilty and, um, and, just, and gotten rid of. And, and in extreme cases, if the king himself does violate the law, he no longer is king. 
And because notice that phrase, there's no rex where there's no lex. Okay. This is important because Aquinas is sometimes sort of cited as like the first Whig. Lord Acton called him that because like, he okay. sort of seems to suggest you can get rid of unjust kings. Oh, and re so a reminder, uh, Canadian, perhaps American oh, listeners, sure, yeah. well, what is what is a Whig? Well, Whig would be like a, a liberal, right? Okay. The first, the first, I don't know, Grit. Okay. <laughs> no, but you know, the first, a yeah, believer okay. in sort of Lockean principles that you know the government is it only rules by the consent of the governed and all this. Well, what Aquinas says is, and this is sort of tradition consistent, I think, with the Catholic tradition. It's that if the king acts unlawfully, he's not king anymore. Okay. Right? The crown is still intact. Yes. The crown is still okay, but you can sever that, right? And that's what you have with Edward II. Edward II, uh, who's the one who um, has his male favorites that he likes to dally with and yeah. prefers doing that to governing, uh, eventually he's sort of forced to abdicate. And he's put on trial for violating his coronation oath. Okay. His coronation oath is, I promise I will... I will obey all the, this is important, it's the future perfect. I will enforce all the laws that the people will have chosen. Okay. So he's committing in advance to, I will by, abide by the laws that, my, that, are, that I enact through my people. Right. When he fails to do that, he's gotten rid of, and this happens, of course, with Richard II as well, okay. right, who Shakespeare writes this wonderful play about, yeah. where he, he openly abdicates his crown uh, and withdraws from the body politic into his body natural. So there's this this interesting thing develops where the king is bound by law, and yet is somehow still meant the crown is still kept uh, untainted by that, yeah. in a way that uh, doesn't happen with presidential systems. Like look at look at what's happening in the states right now, right? With tr you know Trump has muddied this so much, right? Uh, and right. of course now Bi even Biden, right? Historic confidential documents at his house and all this sort of thing. Like yeah. it, it, there's not that severability you can have. Because it seems like it's actually the president himself who might be above the law for as long as he's in power, uh, as, as as President Nixon said, right? Sure. Like you know, if yeah. the president does it, it is not illegal, right? Well, there's not that yeah. severability that kind of happens with the king's two bodies doctrine. Yeah, well, there is grounds for impeachment, though, right? So so impeachment can occur, and uh, I think the interest the president is an interesting um, analog to the idea of king, right? Mm -hmm. So so as head of state, uh, it just says. In a you know, constitutional monarchy, you know, the king or queen is the head of the state. Um, immunity is a good one, uh, right? So, uh, we're we're in, in power. It, uh, you know, he's above the law, I guess. Um, sure, yes. And and um, someone who's exalted. Now, you get from Bracton. You had an interesting quote there about uh, the king can have no equals. Yes. And uh, what was the rationale he gave again? Was well, basically, the subjects cannot be equals of the ruler because he would thereby lose his rule. Since equal can have no authority over equal. Right. Because then he, yes. would, then he would be subject to those subjected to him. Yeah, okay. So he's not, he's superior to his people, and yet he can't legislate without them. Right. So, okay. Which is very similar to um, a presidential system as well, right? Uh, you know, that you have, instead of a king, you have a president, and, and instead of rulers or the aristocrats, you have senators and, and representatives. And who uh, rule through through the people, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I don't think it's necessarily that uh, worlds apart uh, in in that respect. Well, uh, it's um, been said though. That, I mean, that the American Revolution kept monarchy but left the king, right? That what we right. basically have now in, Eng in in England, you have a king without monarchy, and in America, you have monarchy without king. Right. Because yes. the president exercises a lot of the authority that the medieval king had. Like he yes. can he, he can veto legislation. Yeah. which is what the uh, medieval monarch could do. He could withhold royal assent or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. And again, with more legitimacy, 
right? I mean, George yeah. Washington, of course, famously, like uh, like Gideon, right? He declines yeah. having a crown. Yes. Right? But the yeah. federal government has since just kept on growing, right? And, yeah. and I think, well, I, I would say this too, in a, in a similar way to how we as Catholics believe that like, okay, do, do priests need to be celibate? Argue, not necessarily, of course, the Eastern Church doesn't do it that way. But there's kind of this understanding that if you're going to be consecrated for this very special role, there have to be certain, um, I mean, there's privileges that come with being a, in persona Christi, but there's also uh, denials that have to happen. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, in America, you can be president for up to eight years. Yes. Right? But then you're basically back to being a private citizen. Now, now you can yeah. be very, you know, civic-minded, of course, your whole life. Mm -hmm. I'm sure all the presidents are. But you're still, you're essentially renting the country. Okay. Whereas the monarch is set apart for his whole life, right? In theory from, in theory from childhood. In theory from infancy, right. right? Okay. With this sense of public spiritedness. Yes. Uh, now, <laughs> sometimes you're blindsided by this, right? Like, like George VI became king because his older brother abdicated, yeah. which, is, which is interesting too, right? right? He abdicated because he wanted to marry a divorcee, yeah. and that was incompatible with the Church of England's teaching, so he had to give up the crown in order yes. to kind of, you know, he had to withdraw from the body politic and do his body natural, and then... Yeah. And then as a duty, it fell to uh, his younger brother. So sometimes you're surprised, but there's yeah. still the sense that like your whole being is sort of cultivated for the sake of, of, the, of the Commonwealth. And, right. and it's something you're going to bequeath to your children after you, um, right. unless, unless they, of course, abdicate themselves, right? So yeah. I'm not saying that you know, presidents can't have that, but this is really institutionalized, right? That your whole identity is tied up with your people and the identity of your family is tied up with the people. Yes. Um, and a point that you know Tolkien would make as well, right, is that you didn't choose this, right? right. It's it's a duty imposed upon you, as opposed to a, a president. And look, and we have you and I know people who are politicians, and yes, you can feel called as a vocation to be in politics, and you run because you think God is calling you to. That's fine, but you still have to kind of assess yourself as being good enough for this role. Right, you still yeah. have to like pursue the role, right? <laughs> you hope so. You're right. Well, one would hope. And yeah. as Tolkien points out, you know, nolo episcopari, right? If you think you're, if you want to be bishop, you shouldn't be bishop. Right? Okay. The, yeah. A bishop should be like Ambrose and right. not want right. the role. He should have to be dragged there. <laughs> right? Right. right. Anyone who wants to be a bishop is in, is insane and shouldn't be the bishop. I, I, shouldn't that also be true of politics? The highest office in the land shouldn't go to somebody who wants it. Right. right. Uh, which Chesterton says is is really why the king is the ultimate everyman. Yeah. Right. Because in a sense, that's the short, but in a sense, and this is a Chestertonian paradox, right? The most democratic way in the world to choose somebody is just by the accident of birth. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can't, I don't know if I could go with that because okay. that, like it, I mean, there's a few problems there, I think. Um, the, look, okay. A few, a few things. So, so, I mean, when you talk about the growth of government, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, look at Canada, uh, which is, is not, mm -hmm. does not have a presidency. Government has grown exponentially in the last decade or two. Uh, so, so we have a magnificent growth in, in, in government. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's necessarily uh, tied so much to, uh, to, to presidency. Uh, but um, another point about uh, choosing to be, you know, a politician or, or a, a leader of a party. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there is that as well. But just look at both in Canada and the United States, who's been in power? 
uh, and very often it's certain families, right? So mm -hmm. certain families. Uh, I mean, it's right, right, ostensibly yes. a democratic system where anybody well, I can be elected. Uh, seeing Dick Cheney and uh, Barack Obama are like eighth cousins or something like that. So, oh, is that. Okay, yeah. And I believe also related to the royal family. Oh, is that right? Okay, so, like, sure. Well, I, I have a rebuttal to what you're saying, but keep okay. going. But, but yeah, first, right. So, so whether you're. Um, wherever you are from Quebec, uh, right? <laughs> uh, whatever families you're connected to or in the States, you know, the Clintons uh, were in power for quite some time, same with the Bushes, right? Uh -huh. and, and so it, um, I, I, perhaps... Well, and William Lyon Mackenzie King was the, was the grandson of William Lyon Mackenzie, right? The revolutionary who became mayor of Toronto. So, sure, okay. yeah, so, yeah. so maybe they decided they had some initiative, but certainly they were cultivated and groomed and all the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, so so, so th that's going on there as well. Uh, now, the bit about the genetic lottery, though, th this part, I think, is, is Achilles' heel, uh, as, as far as I see it, okay. in, in a monarchy. I, I certainly... Um, appreciate the idea of um, the, this this someone you can look up to right so so this this someone who's beyond just uh, well the plebs uh, right so, so so just beyond more, more than just equal right more equal than equal and I think this is one of the profound weaknesses in democracy right is that in the dem de democratic horizon we don't have anyone to look up to mm. right so so and without someone to look up to well what, where is your vision going to turn? Mm. Well, it, it's yourself, right? right so it's right. going to be insular. And when you turn inward, what do you find? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you find your appetites. So your drive now becomes to satiate your pleasure. Um, or maybe you become acquisitive and uh, you want to you drive in materialistic ends, right? And so that that's one of the, the down, uh, well, major drawbacks of a democratic horizon. Mm -hmm. Is that you're, you're you have it's like a boomerang, right? It, it's self-reflexive, uh, and so how do you get out of that, right? Uh -huh. Well, some ways are through faith, right? Religion, uh, morality. These these lift our chin, right? They raise our heads to to beyond just ourselves to whether it's natural law or the divine law. Uh, we we now or the divine man, the God man, right? We now we have a vision, all right? Someone we can emulate. Uh, so we can still strive for excellence and reach our telos, right? Uh, completion in life. Because otherwise, we lack meaning and purpose without that. Um, so, so the king, a kingship or a queenship, right? A monarchy on the surface seems to play into that a little bit uh, in that it, it provides us with a superior uh, that we can then attempt to emulate. But this is the, as I see it, when it comes to the genetic mo uh, lottery, it's like, well, but I'm not in that family. So how can I possibly strive to emulate them? Hmm. Right. And, and so it, it then it, that's its downfall, right? When, when it comes to uh, a monarchy in that I can't actually emulate them because there's this massive gulf between them hasn't to do with our last names. Uh, and so I can't, I can't get in there. We could change that though. Uh, maybe let's just say, this is perhaps a remedy, you know, we'll give your family a century, okay? You know, that, that gives you, you know, one generation at least, two or three maybe, uh, where you can rule. And then, uh, you know, let's switch it up a bit. So so then we give it to someone else for another century. That would be a, a so, much fairer lottery. The, by the end of that century, people would stop. Arguably, there'd be less incentive for the monarch to care. 
because I know, I, you know, after, after Mala Deluge, right? After that, I mean, my son's not going to inherit this monarchy. Some other family's going to, so what's well, the incentive? Well, but, but what's the incentive to care anyhow if my son's going to inherit no matter what? Right. So, 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 so. Well, I, you, I don't, well you, you may not want to lose the legitimacy of your family because you don't want your. You know, I'm sure the queen was concerned about that when her son was having all that dalliance, you know, involving Camilla and uh, and Diana. Right. So there's that long term investment. I mean, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, I think you're making an interesting case for what is commonly called aristocracy. I mean, this is yeah, this yeah. is seen as being terrible too, right? Oh, in the British aristocracy, right? It's just this, you know landed you know, these families that just their ancestors fought in some war so they get property you know these uh, monasteries that were turned into manors fair enough but I, I mean is that avoidable i mean we for goodness sake in a month you know in less than a month half a month we're having an election and our our premier may become rachel notley whose father was the head of the ndp before her so maybe <laughs> maybe there's something to be said that these families that are in power that's just an inevitability and again at least yeah. aristocracy and monarchy uh, redirects that towards the common good in, in, a, in a guaranteed yeah. way. I, I, I really I did appreciate a lot of what you're you're saying. Um, I mean, I would suggest no, that no surpass tense there did. I did I no, I, I, I appreciate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll make it okay, okay, tense no, no, than, um, um, I mean, I suppose you could say though. I mean, I don't think that necessarily. This is. I think this is very democratic of you to say. I, I don't think necessarily our heroes have to be people we could we could be. Right, because like the Blessed Mother, right? None of us are born without original sin, and yet she's still aspirational for us. Um, I hope the Pope is aspirational, but most of us can't be Pope, right? So I, I don't. I, I, I take your point. I, we need those kind of people. We need those kind of heroes in society as well. But I don't think it needs to be limited to them per se. But I also I, I do I do yeah. want to say because you're, you're platonic. Well, well, okay, friend, but, but though, with sure. the heroes though, yeah. So I do agree. We do need okay. heroes. So so I need. I need great teachers, right? I, I need to look up to great teachers if I want to know how to be a teacher, okay? If I want to be a dad, um, a great dad, I need to look up to other great dads. Right? I need to know how they've behaved, right? I have to, I have to somehow imitate them uh, uh, to learn. Um, if I just want to be a good human being, right, in this world, I need to look up to other good humans to know how they've gone through their story. And so, um, much like uh, Tolkien, uh, he disdains allegory. Uh, so we can't we can't put a story on repeat and just change its mm -hmm. clothing and characters or the names at least and re and replay it. Um, every story is going to be different, but we do need those exemplars. Uh, so so I'm I'm agreeing on that. Okay, so, okay, sure, sure. Uh, I, I I but I don't well I have some. Considerable reservations in, in terms of the, the way it's set up, but here my suggestion would be uh, an alternative. It's not necessarily hockey players that we you know we erect our statues at least in this part of the world. Uh, sure. Those are the ones we have where we name our streets after. Uh, it doesn't have to be celebrities. Uh, I wouldn't say it even has to be the wealthy or the aristocrats, um, the, those particular families. Perhaps there's some things that they do that is worth imitating, but I'm, I, I don't see that per se as, as a good reason why, just because they're successful in monetary ways or, or with land or whatever it is. Uh, rather, I would say look at the saints, mm. right? So those are the heroes uh, of this world that, that we look to, the, the, the prophets, the psalmists, the martyrs, mm. uh, the confessors, uh, right? The, those mm. holy men and women who've, who've, who've gone before us and still live amongst us. Those are the ones... Um, 
whom whom we we need to mm -hmm. uh, to imitate. Mm -hmm. Many yeah. of whom were monarchs. And I'm not just trying to be facetious. There may be an analogy there because I do see, I, mean, I think Balthazar, I, I find Balthazar convincing about this. And he's I, not, he doesn't talk about monarchy as far as I really know. But the idea that our personhood is found in our mission, right? There's, yeah. uh, there's almost a, a king's two bodies thing here, right? Like he, he talks about there's our soul, there's, there's us as individuals. But until we get our role in the theodrama, we're not yes. really persons, right? And once we have that mission from God, um, yeah. that's when we become full persons. And that, in a sense, that mission is external to us and we need to conform ourselves to it. Uh, and he does, he does indicate that, and he, it, there's not a one-to-one -one analogy, but that there's an understanding of this in the traditional idea of aristocracy and monarchy, right? Like noblesse oblige, right? Yeah. You're, by virtue of the fact that you're an aristocrat, that means there are duties and imposed upon you, right? right? The idea. Yes, yes. You're, you're given, uh, and again, and the monarchy, the British monarchy, you have inherited this thing that is external to you. So even if, you know, like Elizabeth, as depicted on the Netflix show, The Crown, right? She, even if you think your sister shouldn't be allowed to marry this divorcee, your obligations as head of the Church of England mean you have to deny yourself in favor. You know, yeah. Like, well, okay, I'm all in favor of, of this external mission, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's imposed upon you. And when they do research, uh, particularly, it doesn't have to be the royal family, but uh, those who have been in those families and have, abdicated or refused to take up the roles, they find much less, or they report, uh, less satisfaction in life. Whereas those who do end up following the obligations that they have, attending the functions that they do, the charities and so Are on. you saying Prince Harry is not yet happy with Meghan Markle <laughs> as it would be if he continued to be a functionary of the crown? You know? Absolutely, yes. Mm. And so uh, when we do conform to these external uh, vocations that we have, we will find fulfillment. Uh, that that that's certainly something I agree with. But I don't think this is a necessary institution for those to exist. And in fact, um, well, we already have. Um, they're just built into us, uh, both bottom up and top down, uh, and through revelation, right? So so built into us in the sense that, uh, say, as parents, right? There's all sorts of obligations that are forced upon us. Whether we choose to abdicate or not is another question. But in as much as we deny ourselves and pick up our, our little children, there we find meaning and fulfillment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in all the other corrections and emails that we send as mm -hmm. teachers, right? Sure, and all sure, the rest. Yes. So, so we take up these responsibilities, even though we don't necessarily seek them out. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, and mm -hmm. that brings meaning and fulfillment. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I don't think that it's a requirement, but okay, it'd be, I, I would compare it to something like, um, of the, again, I go back to the knighthood in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. Um, that, the soldier ideal of the Christian is something yeah. you find in the New Testament. Now, does that mean, you know, that Christians have to be soldiers in some sense, or we have to have a soldiery or, you know, a Christian soldier? Okay, uh, ex ex explain that to me, though. Well, okay, uh, what so, do you mean the soldier ideal? Well, I mean, in the New Testament, Testament is constant, I mean, it uses the imagery a great deal. Right. Are you, th are you thinking like the armor of God? Yeah, the armor of God okay. and uh, right, and, and, and just the apocalyptic imagery in general, right, is that we are, uh, and, and even the sacrament, the term sacrament, right, comes from uh, right, no, this initiation, no, no, right, right. Yeah. exactly, right, um, which is in spite of all of the calls for peace, right, but the, the way that the, let's say the Knights Templar and these other chivalric orders developed was, okay, well, we are in a historical situation now yep. where it seems like we have to take up arms. Okay, so well, what does that mean? What does it mean to take up arms as a Christian? Yeah. 
our business will kind of develop. Surely it will keep developing, but we still, I mean, we still have the Knights of Columbus. We still have yes. various chivalric yeah, 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 yeah. Similarly, again, I'm not saying you can deduce the British monarchical system from scripture, yeah. but what I'm saying, what, I, what it seems to me is that... It's compatible, maybe? Is that what you're saying? Or is yeah, it, I think so. It's the most compatible, and, and it institutionalizes it the most clearly. Because, yes, it, okay. obviously, like, a, a, a... And there are, you know, saintly uh, presidents and prime ministers, for sure. But institutionally, this seems to commend it the most, to, to uphold these ideals the most, of the fact that there has to be self-denial and something bigger than yourself, and that it comes ultimately from God, right? And, and yes, it's true that in, in you know, the American system, you swear on the Bible, but that's, there is something different about that as opposed to the, the, the almost ontological change right, that happens in a coronation ceremony. Let, well, let me say if, a couple, I do okay. want to say a couple things in case I forget them. I, sure, I, sure. Okay. One of them is in response to um, you know, the growth of government, and that's absolutely true. The government's grown in general, basically. Um, but I would suggest, and, and this is why Tolkien called himself an anarcho-monarchist, that may be related to the um, reduced power of the monarchy, right? Because if the monarch were able to uh, dismiss bad kings, or I'm uh, sorry, dismiss bad ministers, bad prime ministers <laughs> more frequently and more at their own discretion, uh, maybe there would be less growth of government. Uh, and then, I mean, so, okay, let me, so Canada, we're, we're Canadians. Maybe we should have opened up this, that we're both Canadians. Okay. If you haven't inferred that yet. Yeah. I, it seems to me that Canadians have actually done the best job of explaining monarchy. Uh, I would I'd point to George Grant. I'd also point to uh, John Farthing's book. If you can find it, it's on PDF online, Freedom Wears a Crown. But it, it was at one point the case that lieutenant governors and governor generals who represented the crown were more confident to uh, dismiss either not give royal assent to legislation or even to dismiss uh, politicians who are bad or like leaders who are bad. It happened in Alberta. Uh, our social credit government tried to pass some laws against uh, free speech and yeah. the governor general just, or lieutenant governor just refused to sign it into law. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think also when we try to make our own currency. Is yeah, it, is we that, tried to make yeah. our own currency, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was unconstitutional. I mean, this was all later all upheld by the um, Supreme Court of Canada. Okay. Uh, there was also a case of like a, a prohibition, I think in somewhere in the Maritimes or maybe... I can't okay. remember where. I, I, have, yeah. I have some examples. Yeah. But th th this has been reduced. So it used to be that it was seen as legitimate for the uh, the royal power, let's say, to withhold royal assent if, if they deemed the law was unjust or or even to dismiss the government if they thought they were incompetent. That happened in Quebec, I want to say, at least once. That the gov lieutenant governor was just like, you are so bad at your job, I'm dismissing all of you and calling an election. Uh, that hasn't happened federally since 1926, which was when uh, Prime Minister Mackenzie King uh, asked the governor general to call an election it's I mean, it's complicated and kind of boring basically like the liberals didn't have a majority but they were probably going to stay in power because there was the progressive party that was going to support them against the conservatives who had more members than they did anyways the king asked the lieutenant governor bing to call an election and the, he said no yeah. and um that all became kind of chaotic and, and and it ended up the culmination of it was that Mackenzie came back, King came back, I think with a greater majority. And basically the, the governor general learned not to mess, from now on the governor general should defer to the prime minister no matter what. So it seems to me that if we still had kings who were willing to exercise their veto power or their power of overthrowing or, or kicking out their ministers, like, like Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien puts it in his typical exaggerated way, right? The king should be able to sack his vizier if he doesn't like the cut of his trousers, right? Okay, that's uh, a little exaggerated, but like, if you had that, maybe we wouldn't have such a overweening huge, I mean, remember, uh, I remember Tolkien says that government should only be used as a verb. There shouldn't okay. be this institution called yeah, government. It's right. only persons exercising sure. governance who do this. And I will, and I'll say this too, 
America has, has done pretty well with its presidential system. I won't deny that. Very few other places have. Like yeah. the most, most Latin American presidential systems. Yeah. And, and even America has had like over 20 government shutdowns, right? Because the, the checks and balances are so yeah. severe and there's no mediating force. There, yeah. there was one government shutdown in Australia in the in 75, I want to say, in the mid-70s. There was a similar thing where the yeah. parties couldn't come to some kind of resolution. So the governor general just fired the government, called an election, and they haven't had a government shutdown since. So yeah. I would suggest there is something to be said for there being more stability in a system where you have a monarch who doesn't do much, but is able to be sort of outside the fray. And if there is, if, if the checks and balances get to the point where nothing can be done, they ensure that governance still happens by being able to fire people. So I, I would suggest that there's more stability and there's more stability in a constitutional monarchy. And if they exercised their clout a little more, there probably would be smaller government. But again, constitutional governments don't have as much legitimacy anymore. And I can't help but see that as being um, related to secularization. Right? I'm kind of with Lewis and Tolkien on this, right? That people see, oh, it's this mystical religious tradition that's not, it's not rational, it's not democratic enough. Uh, if people still had more of that religious sense of loyalty and duty, they might see more legitimacy in the monarch and the monarch would maybe be more willing to occasionally say, no, this legislation's bad, I'm not signing on to it. Or no, you're not a good ruler, this is a mess, I'm getting rid of you, all right? Yeah, I, I, okay, there's a, there's a few interesting points that you're bringing up. Um, I'm able to try and touch on three of them. The, the, the growth of the state, I don't think, is, is, is necessarily tied to uh, whether it's monarchy or a presidential republican system or whatnot. Uh, I think there's other reasons perhaps for that uh, with uh, technocratic um, uh, government that, that, that's, that's taken uh, shape in many places of the world. Uh, so there, and well, with the um, growth of um, uh, personal tax as well, right, which you've seen in the last hundred years, uh, and, and because there's more funds, you're going to get more government. And there's different reasons for it. Um, here's, here's, but I think your point, though, uh, was that the monarchy uh, brings more stability, right? Uh, it has this ability through veto. The, the, and, and this, the British the, constitutional the, system. I was saying any monarchy sure, ever, sure. obviously. Okay. But the, but, the, the one that we have. Yeah, I should, yeah. When I say monarchy, I mean the big sure, yeah, Okay. Yeah. Um, now, here are two, two problems that I can see with this. First being this, uh, the governor general, lieutenant general, uh, lieutenant governor, hasn't really done that. Uh, it's, I think you mentioned 1926. Like, that's a long time ago. Time, yeah. Like, I, I think of um, Stephen Harper, right? We in Prague's parliament. Well, there's a question was, is is Michel Jean, right? Mm -hmm. Is she going to step in and do something about it? And it was like, no, she's not. Like, mm -hmm. she's a governor general. Like, she just says yes, mm -hmm. uh, right? She's mm -hmm. just a figurehead who was sense. And of course, she said yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of, you know, outcries that, you know, he couldn't prorogue parliament and the governor general has to do something about it. Well, no, she's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in there's, a, there's a theory and there's a practice, right? Um, now, the second uh, issue would be, uh, we see this in the Federalist Papers uh, uh, 10, I believe it is, uh, where Madison's pointing out that ambition must be set against ambition. So you're talking about government shutdown or, or, or you know, different layers, the way it's set up, particularly in the um, American Constitution, uh, different layers of government. Uh, you're right, there will be some gridlock, but when ambition is set against ambition, it provides these natural checks and balances, which that's part of the system. So that is supposed to happen, uh, right? Uh, now, some people might see that as a defect. Others might say, well, no, actually, that's a very important restraint on government getting away from what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, and so uh, I think it's Federalist 51, where uh, Madison's pointing out that uh, 
okay, sure, uh, a leader can have all sorts of, uh, he's thinking elected representatives or whoever it is, can have religious or, or moral uh, foundation or formation, but that's probably not enough to limit them when they actually have the reins of power in their hands, all right? So that's why we have this system set up so they just can't get the keys and, and drive away, all right? Uh, whereas, um, the, I mean, the British monarchy might be a good example here, right? Where uh, Henry VIII is able to take the keys, all right, of Peter, uh, which you see this, um, you know, Prince Charles holding them, right? Uh, <laughs> so he's he's now head of the state. I'm oh, sorry, sorry, of, not yeah, just head of the state, of the, but also of, yeah. of the church. Mm. So uh, this, to me, uh, in practice, has um, some serious shortcomings. Mm. Uh, but, in, but see, Madison also said the least powerful branch of government will be the judiciary. Uh, yeah, no, that grew right. later. And, and that's, yeah. Well, and that, yeah, that's in the Federalist Papers, too. He's like, well, because they're yeah. not, you know, he, he's like, he really thought they were going to be the least powerful branch of government, which I actually think they are the monarchy in America. If you think of the monarchy, yeah. like if you think of Solomon, right? right? The monarch is the one who judges as well. Like, that's, that's essentially the Supreme Court of the, of the U.S., right? right. And there is no check on them, really, except other than this yeah. document that they're in charge of interpreting. <laughs> right. that, that's, yeah. a, that's a separate thing, but I'd yeah. argue that's... As mon these these unelected figures in robes, I mean, there's <laughs> that's more monarchical than than the Brit than the British system really is. But uh, yeah, well, okay, I mean, uh, okay, we so there's, a maybe, there's a defect in sure, that. Sure, but, sure, right, I'm okay. not saying, but but that's, I mean, that's and, that, that, that sure, does yes. come later after Madison, right? So 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 the, the there's nothing the, in place the, to stop it from happening though. Like he he thinks that they're going to defer. Right, right. <laughs> right? Uh, but, the, but they don't. Yeah. And they well, just assert their own power and people roll with it. So. Okay. Um, now, you have the same weakness in Canada, right, with, with the judiciary, um, <laughs> who, who arguably is, is well, much sure, less yes. democratic yes. Uh, than... Even, than well, even though we've got that thing built into our constitution that should be a check on it. But yeah. anyways, that's another... So, which, which, well, fair enough. So that's, that's all true. Um, I, th I will I, I will grant you all of this. I think it works. This is what I'm trying to say, though. Yep. It and I, I'll sort of conclude with this. I guess okay. it works. It does work best with a religious people, right? Because you're saying, well, you know, the growth of the state is related to the technocracy, and, and you're absolutely right. I think. Uh, but Tolkien would say, yeah, that's incompatible with the thinking that goes with a monarchy, right? Uh, of, of course, of yeah. course, like a monarchy is more mystical. It's more. It's more of a fairy tale. It's the reason why you don't have presidents in fairy tales, right? There's something, there's something fantastical about it, which is incompatible with the kind of uh, disenchanted, legal, rational way of thinking that we have in the modern world. Yeah. And that's to the credit of monarchy, <laughs> that thinking yeah. that way is incompatible with this, right? If we, if we cut a little bit of that fire, maybe, maybe that would be a check okay. against Okay, the, now I think that leads to a very interesting discussion. So that this anti-modern uh, streak, because it obviously predates the modern era um, and, and all the rest, uh, despite its developments within the modern era, right? Mm. So I think that leads to a very interesting discussion, which is one, I think, on the forefront of, of many Christians mm. uh, today is what type of government ought we to have? Or pursue, and I think this takes us beyond our, our current mm. discussion. But even just to put it out there, mm. so there's some going back and forth. So uh, Rod Dreher, for instance, uh, is Benedict Option mm. uh, is going to argue that no, we need a classical liberal system, uh, like a Lockean one, where you have these massive checks. Why? Because we can't trust whoever is running the government to. Um, put it in place, right? So th in that system, you have these checks and balances which prevents the growth of government so that 
if they're gone astray, they're, let's say they're completely heathen, mm. at least will be protected. Mm-hmm. Some of his uh, interlocutors say, no, 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 no. Um, actually, what we need to do is have conversion of our leaders. So we do need to keep this uh, more top-down system, uh, and th- we have to just make sure we can get Christians in there who can then help put in place the right rules and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be a discussion for another time, mm-hmm. but it's, it's more a half a glass empty or half full. Like, yeah, Do you yeah. think that will actually happen, that uh, there will be a conversion of hearts amongst those in power mm. or do you think no we just need to settle for what is the least uh, worse i'm <laughs> sorry sure, <laughs> the yeah, system yeah, yeah. that that offends us the wor- least um and, and then work with that also someone like thomas moore's were interesting to look at right like what do you do within a system where you're the only good one or something like that right um right. interesting who by the way says he's the king's good servant but god's first Right. Like he, he remains a monarchist right up until, uh, until yeah. the end. Here. Well, well, then the question would be, how many St. Thomas More's are there left right, in, in the system? And barring that, if there aren't, what type of system should we have? Hmm. Well, okay. I guess my thought would be, yeah. my, this is what I, I will close with. I, I won't add anything really beyond sure. this, except in response to any comments you have. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Plato uh, earlier. Yes. Right? And... You can't, I mean, the state can't make people good, but it can orient them towards. And Fortescue says this too, by the way. He, and he talks about Augustine as well, and the idea that, like, our, our ultimate good has to be found beyond this world. And the state should have a role in pointing us in that direction, right? Uh, and again, speaking of, of Canadians, I feel like Canadians have done a better job defending the monarchy than British writers that I've seen, uh, particularly the Anglican ones. Uh, George yeah. Grant is one, uh, John Farthing, that I mentioned, is another. Uh, we mentioned before, what was it, Taylor says, uh, he, you know, he turns Plato into a good Anglican, right? That system the, where the Church of England is the institutional church, but you, know, not, you don't have to be, well, now you don't have to be Anglican anymore. Fortunately, there's Catholic emancipation, but the, the, the state commends a certain form of worship to people. Yeah. Uh, in, in some sense, that's what the British monarchy is supposed to be doing. Though, right. right? It's, it's, um, does everyone have to be Christian? No. But it's commending this forward. I mean, let me let me say that this was something that was different. So we mentioned before the coronation has changed. Um, Charles added a prayer. In the past, the, the monarch hasn't actually prayed at the coronation. Okay. But the, he adds his own prayer, which is it's pretty brief, so I'll just read it. He says, God of compassion and mercy, whose son was sent not to be served but to serve, give grace that I may find in your service perfect freedom, and in that freedom knowledge of thy truth. Grant that I may be a blessing to all thy children of every faith and belief, that together we may discover the ways of gentleness and be led into the paths of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Right. So, yeah. this system, I think, it, it, it's does, a beautiful it, 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 it really is. It's lovely. Yeah. It, I mean, and it's open-ended. You know, it's for everybody. Yeah. But it's he's the ser- he is to use the papal phrase that, that Fortescue uses this too. That he's the servant of the servants of God. Yeah. Right. He's the king who washes the feet of his subjects and everything. And so. I mean, like I said, in the in the Middle Ages, I think there was actually more checks and balances because the king was able to, you know, after seventeen oh seven, you have parliamentary sovereignty, basically in the Glorious Revolution. So now the king has to just rubber stamp Parliament. I'm not saying that's the best model either. Like I said, I would like for the king to have to be able to occasionally step out and overrule things and strike down yeah. laws and get rid of people. Uh, I'm not saying the way it currently is is the best be all and end all. But I think there's an interesting promise there of something like a Christian Platonic political system where yeah. there's the, the king yes. who has this duty upon him. And, and Charles is really interesting. I mean, his whole biography, we all know about his moral failing, which, you know, his father kind of encouraged it, you know, so you're well done and all this kind of thing. 
uh, but he's very traditionalist. There's a wonderful speech he gave to a traditional society right here in Edmonton about the need to kind of discover traditional philosophy and religion and re-enchant the modern world, and he loves traditional architecture. Yeah. Also founded, the, I think, the biggest charity in English history or something like that, the Prince's Trust. Okay. So I think Charles actually is not a bad example of a sort of heroic figure for us to, to look up to. But um, is, the, is the British Constitution the only one anyone can ever have? Subsidiarity would probably say no. Every nation probably has their own unique... Yeah. system that's going to develop yeah. based on the character of the people but i think that we should appreciate the platonic and aristotelian advantages of this one uh, before we before we talk about doing another oliver cromwell thing and replacing it with an <laughs> with an elected with a uh, a non-monarch who just acts like a monarch to see how where is what is the christianity element of it um is there some wisdom that we've inherited that we should reappreciate um that maybe was on display in that coronation ceremony that'd be mine that's my final comment. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I certainly, uh, I appreciate, I mean, that, that, just commenting on the, the prayer uh, there, I, I mean, it's it, that's profound, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, the whole vision, I think, is, is uh, has a certain beauty to it, an attraction, a lure, in theory, right? I guess my question then would be, as far as the land of Britain is concerned, to what end is it more inclined mm -hmm. towards the new Jerusalem, uh, given that it has a monarchy, right? And if you just look on practice on the ground, uh, you know, church attendance, I think, is in this low single digits, uh, right? So, so, so to that extent, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, think you mentioned something really interesting about how the state is to commend the worship of the um, populace. And I think it still does. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, uh, our current prime minister somewhat uh, made an infamous comment about Canada not having a uh, a culture, or, or words to that effect, yeah, uh, yeah. right? Um, but I don't I don't think maybe that was too genuine. I think um, he it does, uh, and and in fact I think the apparatus of the state which has evolved, uh, but it still has this idea of, of orienting the vision of the the citizenry uh, through let's say the CRTC, uh, mm -hmm. CBC would be a good example as well, uh, where. There is a vision which they are trying to instill. Oh, sorry, that, that it, a yeah, it's, it's yeah. a sign. It's, we got to wrap up. But but they're trying to instill a vision within us. Uh, mm -hmm. The question oh, is, totally. is yes. it one that is actually well to Zion above, right? Or, or where is it actually leading? So it's it, it's giving us a goal. I'm, I would question if that's the one that we want to be following. Any case, um, maybe uh, we can leave it there, perhaps. Uh, sure, and, sure. Uh, well, I'm sure, well, I'm sure we have lots of uh, seeds of ideas for future podcasts yes, yes. on this. But uh, uh, I, I think I appreciate your position more. Do you feel you appreciate my ancestors' sacrifice a little more? I, I do. I just I, next time you send an email, I'm going to look for that UE. Yeah, the signature of UE. Well, if I send it to any of you out there now, you'll know what it means. Yes. All right. Let's conclude. Glory be to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. Amen. Saint Isidore, pray, pray for us. us.